Well, good morning. Welcome to the church in the mall, and welcome home. I always like to say this, so sorry I have to steal that one. Well, my name is Kathy Chen. Besides serving as the cafe, you know, church cafe barista, I actually have a full-time job. I am a research analyst, and I work for a company that is an intelligence-driven counter-trafficking organization in Washington, D.C. I will talk later about what I actually do. I want to share uh, with you about my story and how I found my faith. Um, and I will explain to you the reason for my family to leave our motherland, Taiwan, and to move to the United States for two reasons, education and faith. So I was born, uh, ready? Okay, so my title is When the East Meets the West. I was born and raised in Taipei, Taiwan. Some of you might have heard of the term Formosa, and that means it's a beautiful island. The weather is always nice there, and uh, the beaches are fun to explore. And Taipei is where the capital where I was born and raised. It's a very modern city now, and look at that. The building right at my left, I always have trouble with left and right. So when you ever ride with me, when I say make a right turn, you know, I will always give you that, make a right turn. All right, so, so, so um, that's, that story, that, that building is actually 101 floor high. It was the number one tall building in the world until Dubai opened their, their uh, uh, building. But if we were to, fa and then this next slide actually show, it's the mountain, you know, and all the gorgeous place. But if we were to fast forward 30 plus some years, the story looks very different. Like any Asian uh, country, most of the people are Buddhism. And uh, my fa family was not exception at all. Uh, I remember I always had to go with my parents, grandparents, aunt and uncle, and go to the temple, worship, and we do that at a very young age. And uh, <clears throat> I want to do a really quick summary what the Buddhism is, okay? So, uh, you know, the, the faith about it's really, life is simply part of the journey of attaining enlightenment. And then beings, you know, like human being, the beings, and have to go through many different cycles. Like for instance, have to go through life, you know, death and purgatory and rebirth in order to be cleansed with all the accumulated bad karma. And then to gain the good karma in order to, you know, reach the highest uh, being. And that sounds really normal, right? You know, it sounds perfect, makes perfect sense. But to do that, you have to, like you said, you have to get rid of all your bad karma and then get enough of good karma in order to rebirth. So this is, so when the judgment day comes, the guy in the center is the judge. Kind of like very similar to the Western religion, right? You know, the judgment day comes, the, the, the God, God welcome you to the heaven. Now, our story is a little different. When the judgment day comes, the judge then decides, okay? Remember we talk about the good karma, the bad karma, then that you know he's going to then decide all the good deed that you have done, and as well as the bad deed have, you have done, and then decide where you go from here. And so he would decide if you get to go to heaven or hell. All right, 
And then, all right, the next image. Okay, so this is one of the image, what the hell looked like, all right? And the Chinese hell, and <clears throat> actually this term come, the, the concept come in uh, Tang Dynasty, which is about probably 2,000 more years ago. So there's 18 level of hell, all right? And each hell has different things. So you did any bad deed, then you have to go through this and stay there for a period of time before you can actually like, gain enough good deed to move on to your new life. So this image is actually for those folks who commit robbery, sexual assault, rape, or any <clears throat> forgery or anything like that. And then they get, before they, you know, so after they die, before they go any place, okay, they get stripped, thrown to this hot oil pot and burn. You know, I often thought about it. We would to use that. So, you know, instead of saying like, okay, we'll just give that thought. Anyway, so that's the thought. That's the image that I was seeing when I was a little kid. I would go to the temple and there would be all different, 18 different images showing to, you know, to let me know, remind me not to commit any bad, you know, bad crimes or bad deeds. But the funny thing was though, <clears throat> I was always a trouble kid. So my dad say, they will actually have a 19th level just for me. <laughs> and the sad part is though, I will be there all by myself. So that thought scared the crap out of me. <laughs> so that explains to you why I mentioned earlier, you know, I came to United States for two reasons. One was for the faith, for the religion, and, and the next was education. So that's what, <clears throat> I even went back as an adult and uh, I was hoping, you know, after have a taste of, you know, U.S. Western religion, and that, you know, those images will, will be actually easier to accept. Well, I went back, like I say, I went back as an adult, and no, I was as scared as I was at five years old. <clears throat> so in Asia, another thing <clears throat> is for students, we don't get to decide our major. We don't get to decide who I want to be, what I want to be, and all that. We were determined by the test score. You know, and so if your test score is really good, you're going to be the, you know, going to medical school program and become a doctor, whether you like it or not. And then for those that you, you know, don't perform well, you end up with doing something, who knows what. <clears throat> and I was those kids saying like, I, I, I can understand, do well in class, but I'm never a good uh, taste taker. And so my father was terrified with the thought, you know, I may maybe end up doing, you know, uh, carpentry, you know, which I know nothing about. So we decided to come to United States. <clears throat> and uh, fortunate enough, we were able to attend, a, well, there were four, four girls in my family. We were really fortunate enough to be able to attend really elite uh, liberal arts school uh, in United States and pursue what we so call our calling. Uh, and this is where I decide I want to climb the corporate ladder because that not only it sounds good, the, the thrill, you know, being an executive and making all those good money and sitting in the bank, you know, calling all the shots. I decided to do that and I thought I did a really good job. And, uh, you know, I kept getting on the treadmill and never felt, wanted to just keep going and keep going and keep going. Until one day, <clears throat> a situation happened 
uh, at that time my uh, late husband was dying of cancer and I need to take care of him so I asked to take a medical leave and I was told no I can't and so I decide well heck with the corporate life I decide to join nonprofit and fight for social justice so I work for a, a, a nonprofit in Columbus area and start my my life there and when they talk about nonprofit there was a reason they call it nonprofit because the pay was really bad you know and uh, but but the life was good I every day got to do something and I always feel like I was making some changes or helping some people <laughs> until one day I got a call from Central Ohio Human Trafficking Task Force and uh, uh, that's actually branch of Ohio Attorney General's office at that time the um, AG was uh, the current uh, uh, governor Mike DeWine so we got a, a call and say hey you know I need you to lead a team to come and support an operation so yeah so very little information was given just say you know get a team ready and I need you to be there so uh, uh, in January of 2015 I led a team of eight interpreter and three social workers and uh, along with 200 some plus of law enforcement officer we identified 20 so that's the that's the crime scene unit and then like I say there were 200 some uh, uh, eight, uh, police officer FBI's and all that and then we were able to rescue 25 victims they were trafficked from China to United States and later on, we were able to convince a of the victim to provide testimony. And we actually convict two of the Asian women who were all behind us and then charged them for, the, for human trafficking for the first time of history of Ohio. So, thank you. They, they did all the work. I, I, I was just there to scare them. I reminded them all the 18 level of hell. <laughs> I'm really good at that. <clears throat> so starting out, I felt my calling was just to do that, you know, just to rescue, you know, all those victims. And, uh, but then I started to do some, some more research. And this is the daunting information I find out. So every year, and I want you to hear this loud and clear, every year, 25 million people are being forced to engage forced labor. And then 15.4 million were forced to into marriage. And then in United States, that's around the world, in United States, we're estimating 4.8 million women and children are forced to in sex trafficking. And that number is just in 2016. You know, we're always very behind in collecting all the information. And so even if we were to try to get it today, I will say that's, that number will be way much higher now. So with that number, I realized, you know, my job to save each victim to get one out at a time, it's, it's a very slow process. So I decide the only way for me to do this is to find a way to stop all this perpetrator, to help the victim exit this industry for good. 
And so that's why I joined the company, uh, the counterintelligence agency in Washington, D.C. What we do, we expose their tactics in money laundering, sex trafficking, weapon trafficking, drug trafficking, and any illegal activities. And uh, so remember I mentioned earlier, I came here for two reasons. One was for religion, for fighting my faith. One was for education. Well, <clears throat> I was, like I say, I was fortunate enough. I was able to graduate from Denison University, later on even pursue a master's degree in forensic psychology. And most recently, I even had the opportunity to graduate from a fellowship that is sponsored by the administration of uh, children and families, which is part of the Department of uh, Health and Fam Human Services, which is part of the, the, the White House administration. <clears throat> I could not have done that. It wasn't God giving me the strength. And, you know, I could not be what so-called the expert today in this field if, again, was not because of the presence of him. And I want to share a story, how he came in to help me with all this. So <clears throat> in 2000, uh, little, probably somewhere around 18, yeah, 18 and 19, uh, I was assisting a huge takedown in Northern California. In fact, if you search the title from Google, you will see we were actually encountering a sexual, uh, a sex trafficking empire in California. And <clears throat> that investigation started in 2016, and like I say, by the time I got in, was like in the 19th, we were able <clears throat> We mobilized seven jurisdictions with hundreds of, again, hundreds of law enforcement, local detectives, FBI, Homeland Security. And we got into this, and we knew, uh, in fact, I asked Pastor Kevin and the whole congregation to pray for me. We were estimating we will be encountering somewhere about five to 600 victims uh, in that operation. And so we, you know, we walk in, Really, it was crazy and everything. We started that operation nine o'clock in the morning, and uh, you know we we got in, rescue as many as or well, identify. Well, I shouldn't say rescue at this time. Well, we identify as many as we can, and we're going through all this process trying to figure out who, what, you know, and all that. And we're working through. And by this time, it was three o'clock in the morning. We were all tired. So nine o'clock in the morning. So we're really going to the, the next day. And we were so tired. We had no idea who's really the ringleader, who is what. So <clears throat> we decided, you know what, this was, would be our last shot. We're going to go back into the interrogation room and give it one more try. So we went back in, the lead detective and I, we went back in and uh, <clears throat> we sat down and talked to this victim. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, somehow a name, Bao Bao, Came out of our mouth. Yeah, okay. I, I, I don't even remember why and how I, I said it. And so the victim looked at me and goes, Oh, you already know my boss. Well, great. All right. So now I didn't tell you anything that you didn't know, right? Because you already know his name. So, so yeah. And then so we say, Oh, yeah. We not only know him, we knew that the relationship, we were BSing, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we were acting like we really know, right? Okay. And so, so then. <clears throat> She started telling us everything. She told us what it's looking like from her perspective, tell us who's the ringleader and everything. 
And so here, so we actually convict uh, five targets. One of them uh, <clears throat> pled guilty, so she has been sentenced 10 years and a month, and then she needs to pay back $550,000 back to California. Four more are being trialed, and we hope we could charge them with human trafficking and tax invasion and also uh, money laundering. And then, you know, so, so this, again, like I say, if you were to look it up, you would be able to find that uh, in the website. <clears throat> I used to get very frustrated when I'm doing this kind of work because <clears throat> it's a long process and I feel like every time I'm only saving one victim at a time or identify one organization at a time. And I complained to my husband a lot. And he said to me, he, he said, how, how do you eat an elephant? And I remember giving him the look like, what kind of question is that, you know? But he said, one bite at a time. And then one day I came into church and Pastor Kevin in his sermon share saying, you know, God would do everything to seek out for the lost sheep. And then I realized my job is being the good shepherd. And I would keep my job to keep the 99 sheep safe. And I would leave, the, leave God to identify the one lost one. And this way, I will find his heinous crime one case at a time. So my friends, my journey has not been easy, no matter personally or professionally. There were times that I almost lost my faith. However, God always showed up to save me. I was a single mom who tried to raise a, a teenager, a, a young boy who, hmm, a, a lot of you know, uh -huh, wasn't easy. But <clears throat> God gave me a soulmate who helped me to raise him and now He's in college, finding his own calling. And we have a, a family of 18. We have four adult children and nine grandkids. And I could not do this today if without God's help. I could not do this today without the church in the mall. Remember, I ran away from Taiwan to find my faith, and I find my faith here. So in John, in John 6, verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall not thirst. All of what I do as a mother, as a wife, as a grandmother, or as this, you know, person rescuing this sex, you know, trafficking operation, I would not be able to make this happen or possible if it's not without my faith and without what I believe in God. And the most important thing, it's through coming to God, I believe that I am fulfilled his plan for me and using my specific gift to build his kingdom. And every one of us here, we all have a special gift and a special skill. And God will reveal himself to each one of us if we only allow him and give him the chance. So this special church has, so, has enabled me to do this 
and find my hope and find myself and find my soul. I share this story with you today. It's just really to let you know that I hope that you found this as your home like I do. Not only God resided here, you know, there are so many good people who also come here called as home. I think, you know, Brenda, you know, Mary, even though they're not here, you know, <clears throat> Tammy Brenmeyer and, his fam and her family, Herb, and, uh, you know, Pastor Kevin and his family, you know, Pastor Mariah and her family, John, you know, I mean, every one of you has done so much to help us and help me in this growth here. And again, like I say, you know, I could not be who I am today if it's not without this church and not without all the support of all the friends. And <clears throat> so our home right now is facing a difficulty, a rough time. And I ask all of us to work together to make it work because that's what every family member do, isn't that? So the last photo I want to share with you is this family of uh, ours, 18 of us, the nine grandkids and, and, and us. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for letting me to share this with you. And Kathy, thank you. You know, one of my favorite stories in the scriptures comes in Genesis uh, chapter 3, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is standing at the burning bush and God is having this personal encounter with Moses and he lays out a plan for his life and Moses says, how can I do that? And God says, Moses, what's that in your hand? And Moses is holding a staff and that staff represents everything from Moses' life, from his upbringing in Egypt to the education he received going through school there, uh, from being a Hebrew that was born into that culture to then learning how to shepherd and live in the wilderness. And God was going to take every one of those things and use Moses to take the people of God out of Egypt into the promised land. And what I love about that story and how that mimics a lot of Kathy's life and what she's calling us to do is to look at our own lives and say, what has God gifted us with? Because not a single experience, not a single piece of your life is wasted when you simply turn it over to God to be used. And not only is it used, but like you heard in Kathy's story, you get to change lives. Well, we would like to open up this time just for a question and answer time where perhaps you might have a question that you want to ask Kathy. Give me about two seconds to come down off the stage. I'm going to bring the mic around. And the reason we need you to speak into the mic is for those that are watching online and at home, they cannot hear your questions unless it comes through the mic. And so I'm going to step down off the stage. But if you have a question for Kathy, go ahead and put your hand up and I'll come over to you. And uh, let's, let's see what information or wisdom she might pass on to us. If we're to write a check to help help you out, how, where do we put on the check? I mean, do, who do we make it out to? So is your question, if, if you want to help with what she's doing with the human trafficking and stuff, who do you write the check out to? Well, there are many organizations will accept those kind of donations. There's one in uh, Washington, D.C. It's called Polaris. And, uh, and then there's also um, uh, Salvation Army, in fact, here locally. 
uh, Salvation Army is uh, tasked doing a lot of local support. You know, they, they have their chapter all over uh, U.S. And so, in fact, my first encounter uh, with this was through uh, Salvation Army. So besides, you know, doing those collections during Christmas time, they do a lot of uh, uh, victim services, and sometimes they even engage in providing shelters for uh, victim of trafficking. So thank you. If you are, you know, are w willing to give that donation, like say Salvation Army would definitely be very, you know, welcome your uh, donation. And then if you want to look something at the national level, then Polaris Project in Washington, D.C. Uh, they are the uh, uh, agency that mends all the hotline calls throughout not only just in U.S., even overseas. So you can call that number, and then, you know, someone will be uh, dispatched to assist. And so, so those are the two, uh, uh, the two I can think of right off the top of my head. Uh -huh. Thank you, though. Thanks for your generosity. Hey, thanks for sharing your message. I'm curious, uh, within your industry, why is the trafficking uh, more prominent today than it would have been, say, 10 or even 20 years ago? That's a very good question. Actually, this has been around for so long. If you really tra trace it back, and I actually you know, did a lot of study, this actually started even back in 1800s. So now, why do we know more about it? Because we understand, so for the longest time, we treat this, we don't call it trafficking, we call it prostitution, right? For the longest time, what we do, we don't do anything for the victim. We right away slap them saying they are prostitute, and they get locked up, they get charged. And finally, we look at saying, wait a minute, what about those buyers that you know, spend the money to, you know, and then abusing them, what do they get? What about their pimp? What about their, the leaders who are orchestra, the whole thing? What do they do? They don't get any pe uh, penalty or anything. So the, there was that movement for lots of us saying, okay, no, we are going to really look away at saying, let's put the focus. There's actually focusing on demand reduction, looking at the buyers. In fact, if some of you probably, you know, rather or, you know, seeing it, recently Ohio just had a very large operation called the uh, uh, operation Ohio knows they identify 160 some plus buyers and of course some of the you know uh, uh, the uh, operators behind uh, those uh, trafficking rings and so now we're really trying to make the switch in fact uh, Ohio for the longest time will not allow so you know we, we I talk about the trafficking victim often are you know women and children well Ohio Unlike some of the states in the United States, Ohio for the longest time had what we call the safe harbor law, which for kids 16 and 17, they consider them be able to give consent. So when they are engaged any type of this kind of sexual trafficking, they actually will not give them any benefit of doubt. They treat them as adult. So many of us have fought really hard, really long, and we finally convinced the legislators in Ohio. We finally make it into the law this year to treat anyone that's under 18 and then treat any minors. We will automatically consider them being trafficked and then put them as victim rather than any, you know, like, you know, give them any penalty or sentencing or any criminal record. 
And so that was a really good question. I think it's the mindset, like say the movement, many of us are looking more on the victim now rather than looking at saying, okay, they are part of this you know, uh, problem or part of the issues. Because a lot of them, they have no good uh, living condition and no education, they have no skill, and then they even have drug addictions or many other issues. And along all of that together, got them with where they are. And those manipulators who behind those operators who really use that and to benefit. So I, I know that's a, a long, long story to your answer, but I hope I answered that to you. Kathy, if people wanted to pursue a career in what you're doing, uh, where would they start? Very good question. So there are many ways to do this. They are, in, in order to really restore this whole process, they, you know, they are definitely need a lot of social workers who can really help them to, under, you know, to, to provide services. Their services could be you know, a short-term emergency and long-term, you know, really planning them to really exit. So there you have the social worker, that, that's the one field. Then of course you have law enforcement who involved in all this, who does you know, the first hand providing you know, uh, rescue operation. And then there are some of us, like, like you know, we do behind the scenes. We, you know, there are a bunch of us really research and understand saying, what are we, what are we dealing with? You know, like you know, some IT person, we, we have a whole host of folks that really look after. You know, we, we look at, um, uh, for instance, Bitcoin right now, that's another way of actually money laundering. And lots and lots of field that you can get into. And then uh, psychology, that's another field that, that was one of the reasons I decided to go in to try to get my psychology in forensic to really understand, I usually say, to psychoanalyze those criminals. And so those are the field. And then another field that, oh, definitely, I forgot a really uh, key component is those prosecutors. We work so closely with those prosecutors because for what all we prepare, we got all the evidence collect, you know, and, and all that, but we need somebody to take the case out and actually prosecute them in order to put them behind the bar. So there are many ways to get involved. And uh, um, in fact, the, the agency at Salvation Army definitely offer internships. So for those of you who, you know, saying like, hey, I'm not sure, but I want to just to get an idea, you can get involved with that. And then also, you know, Polaris in Washington, D.C., could also uh, offer internship, and so is my agency in DC. We also take interns, you know, to, to help us to do all different type of work. Kathy, how close to home are some of these rings in Ohio? I mean, are these things that are happening outside of our communities here? You know, <clears throat> one of the photo I show was all in Columbus. I'll, I'll try to see if I can go back. This was actually in Worthington, Ohio. And then, uh, then not too long ago, there's another one in Marion, Ohio. Probably most of you probably think that's a teeny tiny town we just kind of bypass, right? Marion, Ohio, uh, that case was labor trafficking. And what they trafficked was unaccompanied minors. They were coming to United States to meet up with their family members or relatives. And the 16 children came from Guatemala, and uh, 
So the, the operator behind the whole, mm, uh, mm, whole scheme was telling them, saying, oh, I will take you to see your family, you know, but we're going to do this and that. Pick them up at the airport and then take them, all 16 of them, into Marion and then live in this chicken farm in a teeny tiny two-bedroom, you know, I, I, I don't know if I should say that two-bedroom. It's just a two-room trailer for all the 16 children to stay there. And they work 24 hours a day pick those chicken eggs every day. And was one that the boy was smart enough. He was nine years old. He was smart enough because he, he, he knows, you know, the number that his parents gave him, his uncle's telephone number and photos. And he realized, you know, like, we've been here for all this time. You're not taking us to, you know, to so-called, you know, to see my uncles or my family and whatnot. He was smart enough to, you know, run away one morning and reach out to a neighbor and asked to use the telephone and reach out to call. And that's how it got identified. So if, if that child was not brave enough to say, you know what, I'm going to give it a try and run away, make that call, you know, we may not know them because a lot of time they are under our radar. They're really, we say it's, you know, <clears throat> they are hidden in the dark and they really are because it could be a no more operation that, you know, a mom and pop shop but you, what we, often what we go in and realize what the living condition that they are under and all that, it is terrifying. As a mother myself, you know, I often wonder saying, how could someone do that as a sister, as a friend? You know, it's like, how could someone do that to them? You know, there were photos and like, so, so Pastor Kevin, that's a very good question. This is not something like, okay, it's not like the movie Taken, or you got the white, you know, box, you know, white uh, van that will be just waiting there for you. Um, uh, a survivor leader actually uh, gave her testimony. So how she got into this whole mess of her life, started out at, a, at the mall. She was, you know, she was a very uh, introvert person and, you know, her friends, they always like to go out on Friday and hang out at the mall. And uh, her friends, of course, all are this, you know, cute blonde hair and lots and lots of friends. She's not, she's all by herself. And so she's always just, you know, sitting at a corner and watching her fr uh, friends having fun. And one day this guy come up to her saying, oh, you know, you were so beautiful. I've been watching you for a period of time. You were so nice and on and on. And so she was so happy. No one has ever said that to her. So she was really pleased to hear that. And then, you know, the next time he sees her, he buys her gift, you know, brings her stuff, buy her dinner, and, 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 and then saying, you know, I'd like to date you. I'd like to go out with you. I mean, everything sounds just like perfect. And so she really thinks that this is her so-called boyfriend until one day then you know, she decides. Okay, so, so he gave her the plan and said, why don't you just run away? You know, let's just come and start our life together. And she's like, oh. You know, she really think yeah, it's, you know, now prince and princess will live happily after, right? So she decides that's what she's going to do. She ran away, and little did she know. So he took her to this hotel and gave her some clothes and makeup, saying, here's what you're going to do. Get dressed up, get makeup done, and I expect you to bring back $500 a day, or I will kick the, well, kick the, you know, crap out of you. And that's how she started. And it took her 
two years before she actually said, you know what, I have enough. And then she reached out to, to get, get help. And so, so this is all how it started. Kathy, do you mind sharing a little bit with us about your first experience with Jesus when you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That's, that's the day. So I, um, remember I say I got the call from uh, Central Ohio, from AG's office, attorney, attorney General's office. And, uh, you know, that operation, when the, that operation was going on, I was going through something really bad in my life, really, really bad. I have FBI agents, Homeland Security, even at that time, uh, Attorney General DeWine standing there in the room. We were talking about the operation and everything. I was going through the worst time in my life. I'm not going to go into detail to say what all happened, but really it's like I really have no idea how could I process everything and then st still working with them to try to come up with a plan. That operation, really, we have no idea. Like I say, I led a, a group of eight uh, uh, interpreters and three, three social workers. We have no idea what we were going to walk into, nor the whole operation, all the officers on, uh, on the scene. So they, you know, when we identified this 25 woman, they're like, what are we going to do? And I, on one hand, was being, I was at that time a victim of a very horrible crime. But I couldn't tell anyone what I was going through because my job was to help those victims. And <clears throat> somewhere, somehow, I got the strength, I got the wisdom. Because, you know, I say no one knows what to do. And even I still remember the chief at that time saying, can I give them to all to you? And I'm thinking like, okay, part of me saying like, why? You know, you know I'm, a, I'm going through something really horrible right now. But can I tell anyone? I feel like, no, I can't. But at the same time, I say, okay, I'll do it. I have no funding. I have, I have no idea what I was going to do. But the minute I say, yes, I will do it. And then slowly, we come up with idea and all that. I was able to raise a, a huge, you know, at that time, I mean, a huge, huge uh, uh, fundraising. And then I got a $1.5 million grant from uh, the federal program to really help me to assist all this. And because of that, because I was able to stand up and say that, and then so and got to know all those FBI guys and all that, and so I did. I asked them and shared with them about what I was going through. And kindly enough, they helped me. And uh, they found a, uh, uh, an organized crime, connect me to them. I still don't know uh, we were ever able to find that criminal, but I know every time when I fight and kicking all this, you know, Joe Schmuck, I know I'm taking back justice one step at a time. You know, as Christians, we are called to be more than just about ourselves. We're called to be about the work of Christ in this world. And our Christ is, in fact, a chain breaker. 
uh, our Christ is one who provides freedom. And sometimes we come in contact with people that have been so beaten and so abused that they need someone like a Kathy to come and help them dream again, to show them what freedom might actually be like, and to be able to provide a new opportunity for them. Now, I know sometimes when we hear these magnificent stories, we think, well, how can God use me? But, but God can. He does, and he will. Each one of us has an opportunity as we interact with people to be chain breakers, hope givers, 